Well, amen and good morning to you. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, as you're turning there, let me say this. If you this morning are, if you are connected to Christ by a living faith, you are seeking now to follow Christ in your life, please hear me. You are a beloved child of God. He loves you. We, we just sang there that goodness and mercy will follow us all of our days. That's from Psalm 23. Do you know a translation there in Psalm 23? It could go like this. Goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life. So it's not that goodness and mercy just follow you like a little puppy dog. No, goodness and mercy are pursuing you now if you trust in Christ. His, God's goodness and mercy. Uh, His beloved child. So, amen. Good to see you this morning. We're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be reading here uh, in just a minute verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1. We'll start in verse 12. Let's go ahead and pray as we get going here. Father, we just thank you for your many blessings in the Word. We thank you, Father, that in Christ Jesus, we can call you Father. Scriptures say, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And children of God we are. So we thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus, through a living faith in Christ, we are your children. You love us, you watch over us, and we thank you, Father, that you work through your word to feed us. So we're just taking time now, Lord, to open your word, and we ask, Father, as your children, that you would feed us now through your word. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I started a uh, new sermon series a couple weeks ago preaching through the book of Acts. Uh, This book of Acts, it gives us the historical events immediately after the ascension of Jesus. Jesus came to earth, he lived, died, he rose again to pay the penalty for our, our sin, and he then ascended back to heaven. And the book of Acts then covers the historical events that followed his ascension. Uh, The next 35 years or so after the ascension, uh, the book of Acts covers the the start of the early church and the initial spread of the gospel message about Christ. At this point now in the book of Acts, Jesus just ascended back to heaven and right before he did, he told his original apostles that, that the Holy Spirit would soon come upon them and empower them to be his witnesses. And and this passage right here that we're going to read, this really is kind of the calm before the storm. Uh, In just 10 days now, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit will come upon the original apostles, uh, will empower them in, 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 in a mighty new way, and they'll then go out everywhere and tell people about Christ. And thousands of people will then put their faith in Christ and begin to follow Christ. The early church will just explode, but these apostles will also then begin to be persecuted, threatened, even martyred. 
uh, this little 10-day window that we see in this passage here, it really is the calm before the storm in the book of Acts. And what are the apostles and early disciples doing at this time in this calm before the storm? Well, they are praying. Lots and lots of prayer. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he actually says twice in this passage that as these early disciples now prepare for the coming of the Spirit, they are praying. Some very prayerful preparations for the coming of the Spirit. Ian Bounds says this about prayer. He says, the life the power and the glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer, and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. Without prayer, the church is lifeless and powerless. And we now see the early church here in prayer. Let's go ahead and read it, starting in verse 12. Then they, the original apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldelma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, this is Peter talking again now, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection." And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. So we can see there's several times the early church now praying, and, and we can learn some important things here about our own prayer. 
There are two primary things that the early church prays for here. The two things that we'll look at here this morning. Number one, they first pray for a promise. They pray for a promise. And number two, they then pray for guidance. We'll look first here at their prayer for a promise. Verse 12 there says that the apostles now returned from the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended and they returned now back to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke says it's a Sabbath day's journey. It was about a half mile or so. So it would have taken them about 15 to 20 minutes uh, to make this walk back to Jerusalem. And you can just picture the apostles right here dumbfounded. Uh, I mean these guys had just seen Jesus lift up and disappear in a cloud. And then two angels came and spoke to them about the the future return of Jesus. These apostles were probably stumbling here back to Jerusalem in silence. Uh, Luke 24 says they also returned in great joy because of the things that they had just seen and heard. There are only 11 apostles now uh, after Judas uh, defected and, and has killed himself. And verse 12 says that the apostles return now to the upper room in Jerusalem where they were staying. Upper rooms back then, they were typically built on the flat roofs of the homes. They were accessible by this outdoor uh, staircase. They were often rented out to to travelers. Uh, You have maybe rented a room before at a bed and breakfast. Um, We've done that about twice, maybe. Uh, Always a little hard for me to rent a room in somebody else's house, but we've definitely done it and enjoyed it. Uh, A lot of people in the Twin Cities for the Super Bowl uh, did this Airbnb thing, which is the new big thing. And a lot of people in the Twin Cities rented out a room in their home to, to fans from New England and Philadelphia. Short sheeting the beds, I'm sure, for the Philly fans, but uh, uh, they hosted them nevertheless. And, and this upper room here had probably been rented by these apostles, uh, possibly the same upper room where they had had the Last Supper with Jesus uh, right before his betrayal. We don't know, but it was probably a pretty large room. Luke says that there were 120 people in this room here. So it was maybe in a wealthier section in the city of Jerusalem. And the apostles now returned to Jerusalem here because Jesus told them to. Uh, On several occasions before Jesus ascended, he said, after I go, return to Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So they return now in obedience to Christ's command. They return to wait for the Holy Spirit, and they don't wait alone. Verse 14 says that there, there were also the women with them, which could mean some of their wives were there. We know Peter was married and some of, of the others. Uh, but it also probably means that the women who had traveled with Christ were there. The, the women that had ministered to Christ, the ones that were there when he was crucified, the ones who found the tomb when it was empty. So, so women like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Mary, and Martha. Martha probably serving in the kitchen, right here in the upper room, distracted with her serving. And verse 14 says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also here. So picture that. Mary just saw uh, recently her son crucified. 
And how painful that would have been for Mary. The scriptures talk about a sword that pierced Mary's heart. Her son crucified. But then she's seen him resurrected. Held her son again. Looked into his eyes. And she's now here in the upper room after the ascension. Along with Jesus' brothers, Luke says. Uh, Jesus had four brothers. Jesus' brothers did not initially believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, But now after they've seen him multiple times after the resurrection, they do believe. His brother James will actually become one of the main leaders in the church in Jerusalem here in the book of Acts. So all these people now uh, gathered around together in this upper room, about 120 people total, verse 15 says, all now waiting, preparing for the coming of the Spirit. And they aren't idle as they wait here, <laughs> just sitting around, kind of twiddling their thumbs, playing cards. They, they, they got a, a Call of Duty tournament <laughs> you know, on the TV in the, in the back corner. No, they're praying. If you look at verse 14 again, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All of them, Luke says, with one accord right here. The Greek could be translated as with one mind or with one purpose. They are unified. They're united. They they are one. Christ had actually prayed for that. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed this for his disciples in John 17. He prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, these apostles and disciples, that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He prayed for a unity among his disciples, and we see it now, right off the bat here, after Jesus ascends. Uh, this unity, this oneness with one accord, and Luke says, devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, the Greek could be translated there as they persisted in, they, they held fast to, they persevered in prayer. And the Greek verb, verb form there indicates that it was an ongoing, continual prayer, probably throughout this entire 10 days as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. You know, God asks Christians today to, to do the same type of thing. Colossians 4.2 says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Romans 12.12, 12, be constant in prayer. And you just, you just picture these apostles, these early disciples, the men, the women, children running around. What were they praying for here in this 10-day window? We have no idea what they were praying for, but it probably looked a little different than a lot of church prayer meetings uh, that we might see today. I've told you before that uh, Derek Thomas, my seminary professor, he always says that prayer meetings in the church today often just become organ recitals. You, You pray for Aunt Betty's kidney and Uncle Joe's liver. You pray for organs. And listen, there's nothing wrong with praying for organs. Jesus definitely cares about our organs. But I don't think this was probably just an organ recital. Can you picture these guys right here? Man, uh, hey guys, Mary's got a wicked cold. I mean, yeah, yeah, seriously, have you seen Peter's bunion? I mean, let's, we got to pray for this guy. We don't know what they 
prayed for in this 10-day window, but one thing they probably prayed for here was the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had promised to send to them. They were probably praying here for both the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus just told them they had to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. These guys are country bumpkins. They probably never traveled outside of Israel. They're desperate for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. John Paul Hill says this. He says the main activity in the upper room was prayer. Jesus had told them to wait for the promise of the Father. And therefore, it is likely that they were praying constantly that the promised spirit would descend. Praying just constantly with one accord for the the, the presence and, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit in order that they might then go out with courage and be witnesses, tell people about the life, death, and resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And man, listen, that, that's, that's a great prayer for Christians still today. We should also pray for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives. Listen, if you're now a disciple of Christ, you're, you're, you're a follower of, of Christ now. You, you've turned from your sin and repentance and you're now trusting and you're following Christ in faith. If that's you, well, the Bible says you already have the Holy Spirit uh, living within you, dwelling within your heart. You, you've been filled already in one sense with the Holy Spirit and he will never, ever leave you. But the Bible indicates that you can also then be more filled with God's Spirit. These apostles here, they they will be initially filled with the Holy Spirit in the next passage in Acts chapter 2. But then as we go through the book of Acts, you know what we'll see? We'll see them being filled again and again and again with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit empowering them at certain times to do certain things. And, and that's, that's a little bit of way, the way the Christian life works. When, when you first come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit initially. Uh, the spirit of adoption now lives within you, the Bible says. And he will never, ever, ever leave you. But the Bible also indicates that you, now that you've been filled with the Spirit, well, you can be more filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be filled again and again and again with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowering you at different times to do certain things. Another of my seminary professors used to say that you're kind of like a balloon as, as, as a Christian. You first come to Christ and you're filled with with air. The Holy Spirit now lives within you. But like a balloon, you have the capacity to be filled with more air, can can be more filled with God's Spirit. And, And Jesus indicates in the Bible that we should actually pray for God's Spirit. Jesus says this in Luke eleven thirteen. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So can I encourage you? Ask. Ask. Ask for the, the presence, the, the, the power of the Spirit in, in your life. 
But pray for that before you have some important talk with your kids. Oh, Lord, just help me now with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Empower me. Give me the wisdom of your spirit now to speak to my children. Pray for it before you meet a coworker for lunch. Lord, empower me by your spirit now to be bold as I speak. Pray for that in your life group. Uh, with your life group members, before you host a neighborhood party. Give us now, Father, more of the presence, the power of your Spirit, in order that we might be courageous witnesses for Christ. Kent Hughes, he, he says this. He says, we do not know exactly why and how the Holy Spirit works, but we have been told what we must do to enjoy the fullness of the Spirit, Our situation is like that of the little boy who asked his grandfather, Grandpa, what is the wind? I cannot explain the wind to you, the old fisherman replied, but I can teach you to raise the sails. The one who wants his sail full of the breeze of the Spirit must have such perseverance in prayer. How much more, Jesus says, will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who Ask Him. When you pray, you are raising the sails uh, that the Holy Spirit can, can fill and, and empower you. But man, here's the thing. You think about these disciples and what they're praying here. They weren't just praying here for the Holy Spirit. No, they were, they, they were really praying here for a promise. They, they were simply praying here that Jesus would fulfill a spoken promise that he had made to them. Several times before Jesus ascended, he promised to these apostles that he would send the Holy Spirit to them. And they're now praying, I believe, that Jesus would simply fulfill his spoken promise. Promise, Lord Jesus, you promised to send us the Spirit. We're dead in the water without the Spirit, Jesus. Please send the Spirit now. You promise, Lord Jesus. And please hear me. Man, we, we can and we should learn from that right there. Because as Christians today, man, we need to learn how to pray for God's promises. You know, God, God gives us as Christians all kinds of promises in, in His Word. All these amazing spoken promises from the one true God. God, God promises to give us help when, when we need it. He, he promises to give us compassion, protection, provision. He promises to, to lead us. He promises to watch over us. So many promises in the Bible. But please hear me. That doesn't mean that we then just sit back idly and wait for those things. Oh, God promised. He'll do it. Twiddle my thumbs. Whatever. No. God promises. He gives us promises in the Bible and wants us then to pray for those promises. For the things He's promised to give us. He he wants us to ask For the things he's promised to give us. And a lot of God's promises are dependent upon you asking. If you ask, Jesus says, you will receive. 
And the book of James says, you have not because you ask not. God wants us to ask in prayer for the things he's promised to us. So like with your kids, if you promise one of your kids, hey, I'm going to take you on a date next week, well, you would expect your kids starting Sunday, the beginning of the week, to start coming to you. Can I have a date with you? (laughs) Can I have a date with you? Just asking for the thing that you promised. And I actually need that because I forget. (laughs) God doesn't forget. A little different. Uh, But still, the same thing. God loves it when we come and ask for the things he's promised. And, And do you know that when you're doing that, it's a demonstration of your faith. You're showing that you really believe God. You promised you would give this thing. And I need it, God. Lord, give it to me now. John Calvin He said this, said, prayer is not a sign of doubting, but is a witness to our certain hope and confidence since we ask the Lord for things that we know he has promised. We know he has promised them and we go to him in confidence and certain hope. We ask for those things and that faith pleases God and he loves to give the things that he's promised to give us. And listen, man, we need to learn how to pray the promises in the Bible. Derek Thomas says this. He says, much of our praying should consist of promises that God has made and are turned into prayers, whether those promises be of daily bread or his ongoing presence with us day by day. So let me, let me just encourage you. Whatever you need from your Heavenly Father, I mean, go to the Word. He's probably promised something about that thing. And you grab hold of the promise He's given you, and you turn it back in your own words to God the Father. Your faith faith pleases Him, and your Heavenly Father, He loves to meet your needs when you ask Him. But please, don't fall into the camp of they, they have not because they ask not. That's the first thing here. They, they prayed here for a promise. And the second thing here, they now pray for guidance. Verse 15 says that the apostle Peter now stood up among these 120 people in this upper room. This is the first of many times now here in the first part of Acts that we'll hear from Peter. For the first 15 chapters of Acts, Peter will really function as the leader of this apostolic gang, the leader of all the, the apostles. Uh, he'll, he'll be the, their primary spokesman. Peter, first part of the book of Acts, is just so strong, bold, courageous, amazing when you think about it. This is the guy, Peter, who just a little while before this, some 40 to 50 days, denied Christ with cursing in fear before a little servant girl. God forbid, I don't know that man, Jesus. But Jesus knew beforehand that Peter would deny him. And Jesus had prayed for Peter beforehand. Jesus actually said this to Peter before the denial in Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. You put that on the screen. You got it. Thanks. 
Jesus said this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, referring to this future trial of Peter's. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you beforehand, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter has now returned again. Saw Peter after his denial of Christ. Peter saw Jesus walking along the shore. Peter just dove in the water to go to Christ. You know, fell before, before him and Christ forgave him. And Christ restored him and Peter will now strengthen his brothers. There is a very significant change that has happened through the apostle Peter when, G- when, when Jesus was still on this earth, I mean, Peter was a mess in the early part of the Gospels. I mean, he always had his foot in his mouth. He's rebuking Jesus, God himself. He's denying Christ. This man was a mess. But now, after passing through this horrible failure, well, Peter's changed. For the better. A great, a great reminder for us. Listen, whatever, whatever your worst failure has been, that time when you messed up the worst, well, it is often that very thing that Jesus uses to heal you. And to change you. And to make you stronger, more humble, more dependent upon Him. Jesus can redeem anything. Even your worst failure. Man, Peter's now been changed. And Peter now stands up and he speaks. If you look at verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And you just stop and think right now about what's going on here. Peter and and these other apostles, these disciples, they had apparently been searching through the, 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 the Old Testament Scriptures. And they had probably, probably been searching through those Old Testament scriptures since the resurrection of Jesus for the past 40 days. Because you know what Jesus said to these apostles right after he rose from the dead? In, in, at, the end of Luke, at the end of the book of Luke, you know what Jesus said to them? Everything apostles written about me in the Old Testament scriptures must be fulfilled. And Luke 24, 45 then says this, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And these apostles here (laughs) then began to connect the dots, reading these Old Testament scriptures that they'd read for years. 
Only now reading them through brand new eyes and seeing how so much of these scriptures were ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And can't you see them over the last 40 years just reading frantically through the scriptures now and connecting the dots? Oh, that's Christ. Oh, my word, that's Christ. And that's Christ. And, 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 and that's Christ connecting all these Old Testament scripture dots to Jesus. And you think about these early disciples now up in this upper room here. They, they were not just a praying early church, but they were also a word-saturated early church. Charles Bunyan, he once uh, talked about John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon loved Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and Charles Spurgeon said this about John Bunyan. He said, John Bunyan knew his Bible so well that if you pricked him, his blood type would have been Bibline. <laughs> and, and listen, these apostles here, at this point in time, they have Bibline blood <laughs> coursing through their veins. They have been living in the Old Testament scriptures, and something has now become clear to them. If you look again at verse 16, this is Peter, he says, brothers. It could also be translated brothers and sisters. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And you can leave that up there for a second. A little side note here with this verse. That statement right there is a clear indication of what the apostles thought about the Scriptures, the Bible. They believed that the Scriptures were the inspired Word of God. The Scriptures did not ultimately come just from human beings, people like David, but ultimately came from the Holy Spirit who spoke, Peter says there, by the mouth of David. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit working in human beings and, and writing the Scriptures. And in this case, the Apostles now discover something in the Old Testament Scriptures that the Holy Spirit spoke through David in the Psalms Concerning Judas. Before Luke tells us here what they discovered in the scriptures about Judas, Luke first gives us here this little parenthetical statement telling us what ultimately happened to Judas. If you look at, at verse 18, you can see the parentheses there. And this is probably Luke's insertion into what's going on here. He says, Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, his betrayal of Christ, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodelma, that is, field of blood. You just piece things together throughout from other scriptures. We know from other places in the Bible that, that, that Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver by the Jewish religious leaders to betray Christ. But then Judas, after Jesus 
was then condemned to die, Judas, knowing that he had betrayed an innocent man, he went back to the Jewish leaders, tried to return the silver to them, and they wouldn't receive it from him. So Judas threw the silver on the ground in front of them, he left, and he hanged himself. And Luke now says here that Judas ultimately fell headlong, probably meaning that Judas hung there for quite some time until the rope had either rotted through or, or just broke or the, 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 the branch broke and his decomposing body then fell forward, face forward, bursting open in the, the middle, Luke says, his intestines literally pouring out. It's the same Greek word that Luke will use for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. His bowels pouring out. It's an incredibly gruesome picture there. Matthew 26 says the Jewish leaders then took this, the, the silver, the blood money, used it to purchase this field where Judas died and named it, as Luke says here, Akodelma, Aramaic word meaning field of blood. Incredibly gruesome picture. Luke wants you to see the final picture. I, th- I think that is a warning for, for any who would defect and, and, and betray Christ. It is a picture of judgment upon, of God's judgment upon Judas for his betrayal of Christ. And Peter and these other disciples now pouring over the scriptures, they realize the Holy Spirit speaking through David in the Psalms actually prophesied some things about this man Judas. We'll go on after this parenthesis. Luke goes on and Peter's talking again, verse 20. Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter has just quoted there from two Old Testament Davidic Psalms. The the first is Psalm 69. It, It was a psalm that prophesied a lot about Jesus who was still to come. It's in Psalm 69 uh, that we find this in verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 69 ultimately being fulfilled in the cross. And I'm sure the apostles saw that and thought, wow, that's pointing to Christ on the cross. And toward the end of this psalm, Psalm 69, a prayer is uttered that God's judgment would fall on, on enemies who persecute an innocent sufferer. And in Psalm 69.25, it says this, May there, the enemies, may their camp be a desolation or be desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. And these apostles here now, searching Psalm uh, 69, looking through it, they know. That's Judas. That's a prophecy spoken hundreds of years beforehand by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David concerning Judas. His camp, his apostolic office is now desolate. It's empty. We only have 11 apostles now. 
And Peter then quotes instantly from a second Davidic psalm. Here's Psalm 109. It's another psalm about an innocent sufferer tormented by enemies. And the psalm singles out one of the enemies and says this about the enemy in verse 8. May his office, may his days be few, may another take his office. And these apostles here, man, connecting dots, they also recognize that to be a prophecy concerning Judas. The light bulb goes on. They get it. They now see that God was telling beforehand what would happen to Judas. His office would be desolate, his, his camp, and God was also telling them what they should do about it. May another now take his place. So they say, we gotta, we got to replace Judas, man. we got to find another apostle. So, so Peter goes on here, and he then lays out the qualifications for a new apostle. He says in verse 21, well, <laughs> we got to have a new apostle. And that means it has to be a man who'd been with Christ from the very start of his public ministry with John the Baptist all the way through Christ's ascension. And you, you see what's going on here. They need another eyewitness. That's what these apostles had been chosen by Jesus to be. His eyewitnesses, they were chosen to be with Jesus and to see and to hear all that Jesus did so they could then go out and tell people all that Jesus had seen and, and done. So in putting another apostle in place, they need another eyewitness who's been with Jesus from the start of his public ministry. So they look around the room now and they come up with these two guys. Uh, this, this first one named Joseph, verse 23 says... Uh, and then Luke gives them about 10 other names. Uh, J- Joseph, uh, Barsabbas, or Justice, he was called. Okay, lots of <laughs> nicknames for this guy. I was reading through this, and I instantly thought of, in this corner, uh, we, <laughs> we have uh, Cassius Clay, uh, the, the victor of the Thrilla in Manila, the Louisville Lip, the, the, the greatest, the champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, and in this corner... Matthias, <laughs> who hasn't figured out his nicknames yet, I guess. So they get these two men, put them up in front, and all these people then ask God to make the decision. If you look at verse 24, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Man, you, Lord. You, Lord. And and don't you think they might have been just speaking directly to the Lord Jesus Christ at that point? Uh, You, Lord Jesus, or Lord God, uh, you're the one who who initially chose the 12 apostles. (laughs) And you, Lord... You actually know the hearts of all people way better than we do. Both of these guys look qualified to us. We don't know. Will you just choose? And the last verse there says that they then cast lots. 
It was probably just a leather pouch, or it might have been this, this clay jar. It probably had two, two stones in it, maybe um, each man's name written on, on one stone, and they just cast one of the stones out. People back in the Old Testament times, they, they cast lots quite a bit to get direction from God. I know some of you would probably like to do that today. Lord, I have no idea. I'm just going to throw a couple stones. and you, you show me which way I should go. They did it back in the Old Testament times. God used it. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord but don't cast lots. (laughs) This is the last time we will actually see it in the Bible. Once the Holy Spirit is given, Christians no longer need this type of direction. (laughs) Could you see us? Uh, Hey, we need need to choose another elder. (laughs) Grab the dice. (laughs) Roll it out. There he is. Uh, No, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We don't need to cast Lots, but up to this point in time, God certainly used this thing. Listen, it was really just a way to trust in God's providence. It was really just a way to trust in God. Hey, we don't know the way to go here, Lord. Will you please show us which way to go? And I'll tell you what, some Christians, they probably should cast lots, because then they'd actually be trusting in God just a little bit rather than making all their decisions just based upon their own minds. At least these guys were trusting in God's providence here. Roll the dice and trust, and the lot here falls for this guy, Matthias. And he is now installed as a replacement for Judas. It's the last time we'll hear about him in the New Testament. He didn't get a lot here. Uh, But Christian history says that Matthias was actually martyred, spreading the gospel in Ethiopia. So whether or not that's true, I think we should thank God for this man, Matthias. And man, you know, you step back and you look at this decision that these disciples here just made. I think we can learn one more lesson there about prayer, about praying for guidance. As a follower of Christ, as a, as a church, we will often be faced with decisions that we just don't know how to answer. You just don't know. It's just so difficult at times to discern God's will and actually make a decision. And and that passage there is helpful when it comes to making decisions. Daryl Box says this. He says, readers of Acts are to understand this passage not only as an explanation of how Judas was replaced, but also as a precedent for how to seek God as a community in decisions, looking to God to show the way. John Stott said this, it is instructive in this passage, it's instructive to note the cluster of factors which contributed to the discovery of God's will in this matter. These factors here that these people use to make this decision. What are the factors that help them discern God's will make this decision? I think we can see several of them here. The first one is the Scripture. They started in the Word. 
They didn't even know they had to make a decision until they read through the word and like, oh yeah, we got to put somebody in Judas's place. It was the word that showed them they even had to make a decision. And we need the word as well when we make our decision. It gives guidelines for the decisions that you make. It helps you to even choose what decisions to make. The scripture was one of the factors in their decision here. A second factor in their decision here was just common sense. I mean, they knew, hey, okay, we got to find another apostle, right? And we know an apostle has to be an eyewitness of everything Jesus said and did. So let's just use our common sense and look around the room. Who's been here from the start? Oh, we see two of them. Just this mini-name guy over here and also Matthias. They used common sense based on what they knew from the Word of God. We need to use common sense as well. And the third factor here in their decision is prayer. They didn't just read the Bible and then use their common sense and make the decision. No, they read the Bible, they used their common sense, and they prayed. Lord God, will you show us specifically which of these two men you have chosen to be the next apostle? They look great to to us. They're both qualified as far as we can see, but we can't read the heart Will you please show us which one? They prayed it, the third. And the fourth and final factor I think you can see here in their decision is God's leading. You know, these guys here with these lots, they're just looking for God's sovereign providential leading. It doesn't mean we cast lots today. Uh, don't make your marriage decision on that. <laughs> Lord, is it Betty or is it Sue? Bang, and you take Betty. No, that's probably not the way to go. We have the Holy Spirit, but here's the thing. You still have to look for the leading of God's Spirit when you make your decisions. You don't just take the final factor out like so many Christians do now, just use the three factors that I'll read my Bible, use my common sense, I'll pray about it, I'll just make a decision without ever really waiting and looking for the leading of God as they make their decision. But these guys looked for God's leading. They looked for him to show them who he had chosen. Man, again, the options can just confuse us. You've been in the Word, you used common sense, you prayed about it, and, and you need now God to lead you. So wait and look for the leading of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like for the Holy Spirit to lead you in a decision? I have no idea. I, I think I know some of them. The Holy Spirit could probably lead us a, a million different ways. The, the Holy Spirit can, can lead you through other believers. The Bible says that there's a wisdom in the multitude of counselors. So if you have to make a decision, ask the believers you trust. Ask the believers in your life group. Don't be like so many Christians and just go alone and make your isolated, independent decision about everything in your life. Ask the other believers whom you trust and listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit through that multitude of counselors. But listen, don't you think the Holy Spirit can also lead you internally somehow? That the Holy Spirit can maybe just nudge you somehow or give you some sense that that maybe one of those options is just not a good option. 
My word, we've been working lately. We've got a family member in town looking for a place for our family member to stay here now in the Twin Cities. We had a place that we had picked out for, for our family member. thought it was a really good place. I woke up in the morning this past week after we prayed, after we thought just with this massive unrest about this place. And so I paused and I prayed and I called my, my brother and my sister. And in 24 hours, we had a new place which seems like such a, a better fit. The Holy Spirit can, can lead you internally. Yes, definitely. You got to be careful with that. It can't just be the pizza you ate last night. Oh, I don't think I should do this. <laughs> that pizza was bad. No, no, be careful. But listen, the Holy Spirit's a person. And he lives within your heart. You don't think the Holy Spirit can somehow do things inside of you to help you gain a sense for maybe what you should do? Do you know for a lot of Christians today, the Trinity is really just the Father, Son, and Holy Word. Just read the Bible and then make your decision. Well, it's not. The Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, the Bible is important in your decisions, but we need both the Holy Word and the Holy Spirit to make our decisions. So look for the Spirit to lead you, maybe internally. Or the Holy Spirit can lead you providentially. Don't you think the Holy Spirit can just kind of arrange circumstances where all of a sudden one of the doors looks like it's closing and the other one looks like it's kind of opening up? You know, later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're trying to go into this area called Bithynia. And the Bible says that the Spirit of Christ stopped them. What did that look like? <laughs> They're walking towards Bithynia and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up like, bang! And I, I, probably not. Was it just some sense of unrest in their hearts that, that, that they can't go to, into Bithynia? I don't know. It's likely that it was something providential, some sort of circumstance. They, they maybe didn't have the right papers to get into Bithynia. And they interpreted that as the Spirit has stopped us through these providential things. And guess what? That night, Paul then had a vision, a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And they knew God was redirecting them over to a new area where they met Lydia and plant the church in Philippi. Do you think the Holy Spirit can maybe do similar types of things like that in your life today? Absolutely. 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 The Holy Spirit is not dead. He's alive. And if you trust in Christ, he's within your heart and he can lead you as you, you make your decisions. Man, we learn a lot about prayer. That's the ultimate piece in this passage, just prayer. God's, uh, they, they pray for, for this promise. They pray for guidance and they get it. They now have this final apostle. And you know, this whole passage is really just uh, another encouragement to us about the critical importance of prayer. I don't know where you're at with prayer, but man, may God stir you up to pray. May God stir us up as, as a church to pray. I'll close here with that E.M. Bounds quote one final time. The life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer. And the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer, without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. May God help us to pray. Well, Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you for your scriptures. 
We believe you teach us in and through your scriptures. We believe you're teaching us here, uh, among other things, about prayer. Again, the importance of prayer. We would just ask you for help, Lord God, in our local church, that we would not um, grow slack with our prayer. Pray you'd help us, Father God, to learn how to, to, to fight to pray and to carve out time in our lives to pray alone and with other believers. Pray you'd help us in our life groups to pray. Father, don't let us depend upon our own resources in our church. Help us, we pray. We know you work through prayer. Stir us up to pray, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.